While you're turning there, I'll give you just a little bit of context. So we're in John chapter 20 because, like I said, two years ago, we started in John chapter 1. And now we're in John chapter 20. And we just have, uh, I think, this week and four more weeks. And then we finish the book of John, which I'm someone that always starts projects and never finishes it. And so I'm pretty excited about the fact that we finished uh, a book of the Bible, especially a rather lengthy book of the Bible. So that's absolutely fantastic. But a little bit of context about where, where we're reading because we're dropping into uh, uh, just a slice of the story. It's a resurrection Sunday. That's what day it is. It's the same day that Jesus has risen from the tomb. It's Easter Sunday, if you will. And um, already uh, Mary Magdalene and Simon Peter and the writer of this gospel account, John, they've already been to the empty tomb. They've seen that it's empty. Um, J- uh, John and Simon Peter have returned back to Jerusalem. Mary has, um, she's gone to Jerusalem, come back to the tomb out, just outside of Jerusalem. She's now seen the resurrected Christ. There were two disciples, an unnamed disciple and a man by the name of Cleopas. They're on the road outside of Jerusalem to another village, the village of Emmaus. And Jesus has shown up. Now, John omits this, but Luke picks it up. And Jesus has showed up and he's traveled with these men. He's kind of hidden himself. He's disguised himself from them. So they don't know who he is. They get to Emmaus. They go into a home. Jesus shares a meal with them. Jesus opens up the scriptures to them and begins to tell them about uh, everything in the Old Testament pointed to me is what Jesus is teaching them. And then all of a sudden he opens their eyes so they can see it's Jesus. They, oh my gosh, it's you, Jesus. And then Jesus vanishes. These two men, they probably finish their meal. They say this, they said, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened up the scriptures to us? One of my favorite lines in all of the Bible. And then they have taken off running. They've run back to Jerusalem the, at least the 10, 10 of the disciples, um, the original kind of 10 of the original 12, Thomas isn't there. They're all holed up in this home in Jerusalem. Everybody's in talking about, we've seen Jesus, he's resurrected. The room is a buzz. And this is what John says about that. We're in, a, we'll start in verse 19, John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a delight it is to share news, the good news of a Jesus that we love from a word that we love as we love one another. May your spirit, the same spirit that you told the disciples to receive when you breathed upon them, that same spirit, may he be near us as we study your word. Lord, have your own way. We open ourselves up that the room is shut, but it didn't bar you from entering. And we ask that you would enter into our minds and enter into our hearts in this moment. And you would speak to us by the power of your spirit through the proclamation of your word. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated. 
not only does this text give for us an accurate and historic and detailed account of what has occurred post Jesus's resurrection, but I think also what this text of scripture gives for us is it gives us a glimpse into Jesus's, uh, er, uh, into Jesus's heavenly ministry, that most of the real estate of the four gospel accounts, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's the gospel writers. Most of the real estate in those gospel accounts, they, they uh, describe and give us detail about Jesus's earthly ministry, that Jesus shows up on the scene pro- proclaiming uh, the kingdom of God. He shows up, he's an itinerant preacher, a, a rabbi, if you will. He preaches his first sermon. His first sermon is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus goes about and teaches and proclaims who he is and teaches and proclaims uh, who the father is and what the kingdom of God is all about as giving demonstration to his proclamation, to his teaching, and to the veracity of who he is, Jesus performs miracles. The miracles that he performs aren't just like hocus-pocus tricks. It's not like Jesus levitates stuff and spins it around. It's not like Jesus takes a cup and turns it into a, a lion. None of those things. Like Jesus' ministry is very practical to people. Jesus heals the sick. Jesus feeds the hungry. Jesus, even on occasion, he raises the dead. Jesus shows that he's God in that he demonstrates his power over creation. Jesus walks on water. Jesus with just a word, the same word he uses here, the word peace be still, he calms the storms. I mean, Jesus, uh, that, that's kind of the summation of Jesus's earthly ministry. Jesus's earthly ministry, it, it ends um, with the events of a cross and in a tomb. Jesus has been saying that he was going to give his life as a ransom for many, that Jesus came to die, to assuage God's wrath, to give his life as the Lamb of God for the the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus does that on a cross as what's been prophesied in the Old Testament, what Jesus has prophesied. He's laid in a tomb and then he's resurrected again. And that's most of what happens in the gospel accounts. And then we have this little slice that gives us a picture and a glimpse of what Jesus's ministry is even today. Jesus's heavenly ministry. His heavenly ministry will begin at his resurrection. It will be finalized as Jesus will ascend some 40 days um, later. He will ascend. Sometimes my Kentucky language gets me in trouble. It's a very, uh, I was told one time by a French teacher that uh, in the South, we have a very lazy mouth, lazy muscles. And so sometimes I, when I say ascends, it sounds like, and Jesus sins. And they're like, <gasps> you know, elders are getting ready, like getting stones out, you know, it's getting ready. Ah! When Jesus ascends on high, that's where his, his heavenly ministry is inaugurated as Jesus ascends into heaven. There he'll be coronated as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He'll sit down on a throne where he is even today, reigning and ruling and interceding, poised to return again. And what we have, why Jesus is in these 40 days, we get a glimpse of his heavenly ministry, even here in this text. Four um, ideas or words that I want to pull out to kind of help us to navigate through uh, this text is these four words, and my preaching professor would be proud of me because they all start with the letter P. The first one is presence. The second one is peace. The third is power, and the fourth is purpose. I think I'm going to flip-flop three and four. And so it would be presence, peace, power. No, purpose, and the power. Yeah, 
purpose and that power. The first one is presence. And we see this, that Jesus shows up. John says that on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples, they were glad when they saw the Lord. This is the point. Jesus is not limited by closed doors. That Jesus' resurrected and glorified body isn't something that we can really understand because we've never seen it. We've never experienced it. We've never seen what it's like. I mean, no other human has been like this. That Jesus is the God-man, even after his resurrection, he is still the God-man and his body reflects that, that his body is both human and his body is heavenly. Like we can't understand what the molecular makeup of his body is, but it says this in the text that the door is shut, the door is barred, the door is locked, and then all of a sudden Jesus shows up. Now, possibly some would say, well, they didn't realize that Jesus came in through a window or Jesus, something like this, but there's other occasions when Jesus will show up. In fact, in Luke's account with the story of the men in Emmaus, what they say there is Jesus just vanished. I mean, Jesus is not a ninja. He didn't throw down a smoke bomb. And then when the smoke left, oh, Jesus is gone, that there's something incredible about Jesus's body as if there wasn't already. Again, we're talking about a man who walked on water. I mean, that's the point of the whole gospels is you've never seen anyone like Jesus. When Jesus stands up and he calms the storm, the very disciples who spent time with Jesus, the question they will ask is, what manner of man is this? That even he has powers, that the winds and the seas, that they they, they listen to him and they obey him. And the same thing is true now about Jesus's resurrected body. I mean, I don't know how he did it, but I know this, that Jesus is still human in some form. I mean, he's human in that he's recognizable. He hid his image from the men on Emmaus, but here it's obvious that the disciples recognize him. Oh, this is Jesus. He looked like Jesus. He's able to be touched. Next week, we'll see that Thomas will even plunge his hand into Jesus's wounds. He's able to be embraced. Jesus will eat. He ate with the men in Emmaus. And again, he will eat here in this context. John omits it, but Luke includes it, that Jesus will say, hey, let's have some fish. And so they broiled him some fish. I guess they just didn't have any oil. Otherwise, they would have fried him some fish. But nevertheless, they broiled him some fish. And I guess the point is, is being resurrected from the dead makes you hungry because he's eaten two meals in less than 12 hours with these men. But nevertheless, Jesus eats and they watch Jesus eat. Why did he eat? Well, because he was hungry, but he ate to show them that he's been bodily resurrected from the dead. Jesus will breathe even. Here we see he breathes upon them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. His lungs are still capable of taking in air and blowing air out. And this is the point that this is not a ghost or an aberration. This is a once dead, now back to life Jesus. That a few weeks ago, we covered the proofs of Jesus's death as he hung upon the cross. And here we could even cover the proofs of Jesus's life as a body that he has flesh and he has bones and his body is not so heavenly that it isn't human. And yet he isn't so human that he isn't heavenly. 
He's heavenly and spiritual in that walls and locked doors don't matter. A sealed up tomb doesn't matter. He's able to just pass through his grave clothes and leave them in a pile. His body is not bound by barriers. He just appears in a locked room. And rather than us fixating on the how, that's not why the gospel tells us this. It isn't so we could try to figure out now how did Jesus do this and what will this be like? But here's what I think is the purpose of this. This is the good news for us that Jesus can go where no one else can go. There isn't a home that Jesus cannot enter. That's good news. There isn't a hospital room that Jesus can't enter. There isn't a prison cell that bars Jesus from entering into that place, that there isn't a single place on this earth where Jesus cannot go. And if block walls and barred doors are no match for Jesus, then guess what? Jesus has the power to pierce the hardest of hearts. And Jesus can subdue the most stubborn of wills. And Jesus can melt the coldest of affections. And Jesus can break down the strongest wall of intellectual argumentation that any person can build up. Whenever I was, uh, I think in my early ages, um, like I don't think I was in the youth group yet, but there was a Sunday school classroom in my grandfather's church. And there was this picture of Jesus inside there. Um, the picture of Jesus is this picture. It's Jesus uh, standing at the door and he, the door is closed and Jesus is knocking. And I remember like oftentimes my Sunday school teacher, she would go to that picture and she would uh, want to make sure that we all understood that Jesus is standing on the porch of the door and Jesus is knocking. And the, the, the point of the picture is, is there's no doorknob on the door. The door is shut, but there's no doorknob. There's no way for Jesus to open the door that either Jesus isn't strong enough to break open the door or Jesus is too gentlemanly to bust down the door. And I know where they get it from. It's actually what Sean taught on this morning. It's found in the book of Revelation in the third chapter in the 20th verse. It's what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will eat with him and he will eat with me. And that was the whole point. But the only problem with that and that interpretation of that is this. In Revelation chapter three, in the seventh verse that precedes this, Jesus says this to the church in Philadelphia. He says, this is the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David. Now, I didn't even know David had keys. I don't know if he lost them. Jesus picked them up. But nevertheless, he says, I have the key of David. And this is what this key enables me to do. Enables me to open what no one can shut and allows me to shut what no one can open. Good night. Jesus can bust down any door that he wants to bust down. That if Jesus stands on a door and Jesus knocks, he does it out of his choice and not out of necessity. And I say that to speak to two audiences this morning. First, practically, let me just say to, to the saved folks in here who have loved ones who are unsaved. Let me speak to the moms and the dads in the room that have a son or a daughter who have yet to profess faith in Christ or their faith in Christ has proven to be 
less than genuine. Let me speak to the saved spouse who's here, who's praying for their unsaved, hard-hearted spouse. Let me say something to the son or the daughter who's praying for their mom or for their dad. This is such good news for you. That when you pray for the salvation of your loved one, this is who you are praying to. Not in that picture, the one who's unable to show up who's unable to bust through, who's unable to break down the will of man, but the one who has power over it all. That's who you are praying to. My mother-in-law, Luann's mom, she fervently prayed for my brother-in-law for 40 years. And 10 years ago, my mother-in-law went to be with Jesus. And her son had yet to yet to profess faith in Christ. And six years ago, watching John Hagee on TBN, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law prayed the sinner's prayer. And he's, my brother-in-law is here today. And my mother-in-law has no idea. (laughs) She's in heaven with Jesus. She has no idea that her son that she prayed for for 40 years gave his life to Christ. Gosh, in some ways, Troy, I I know you're older than me. I hope that I precede you in death because I want to be there when Mildred looks upon her son and sees him. You got saved. Jesus saved you. I say that to you who are here, who've been praying years and years for your unsaved loved ones. Keep praying because Jesus has real power to save. Don't ever forget who you are praying for. And to the unsaved person in the room, the man or the woman who've yet to bend a knee. Gosh, this isn't a standoff. Well, that makes me just want to harden my heart more. I'll give Jesus something to break through. You think those walls and those doors were something like, that's not what it's about. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. And the whole point of this story, the whole point of this text here, not my story, the whole point of this text is to say that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. Jesus is no ordinary man. And if Jesus has power to resurrect from the dead, then everything that he said about himself is true. Everything that he proclaimed is true. And what Jesus said is there's only one way to salvation. There's only one way to pass hell and to hit heaven. And it's through faith in him. And our prayer, even this morning, saved ones in the room as I'm preaching, would you pray that God would open up the cold, dead hearts and affections and wills of men and women in this room, that they would place faith in Christ even today, that what the Apostle Paul would say, that today would be the day of salvation. And that's our prayer. Jesus shows up with real presence. And Jesus shows up in your life with real presence. 
In the midst of your fear, Jesus shows up. And what does Jesus bring? Well, Jesus brings peace. Why are they in a closed, locked up room? Well, the text tells us, John says, for fear of the Jews. I mean, if we could put a meme with this, it would be the meme where uh, the guy from the office is going, what is going on, right? That's the meme that we would place with this text. What is going on? I mean, that's what the disciples have to feel in this room. Like I said, the, the room is alive. There's a buzz in there. I mean, all they knew was that, uh, that you know, Jesus has been crucified because the, the Romans saw him as a threat to Caesar somehow and that he's died and been put in a tomb and who else is the Jews gonna come after? And now they're talking about Jesus being resurrected from the dead, that they are, all they know at this point is that Jesus's body is missing. Mary's saying she saw him. Cleopas and another disciple are saying, hey, we saw him, but then he disappeared. And so their fear is understandable. There's a clear and present danger in the Jews, but maybe there's a second fear. On the news of Jesus's, as the news of Jesus's resurrection has spread, Think about these, these disciples, especially the 10 that are in the room. These are the men that have spent three years with Jesus. And yet when Jesus needed them most, Jesus has abandoned. I mean, they have abandoned Jesus. None of them showed up at the crucifixion. Only John, the writer of this, watched the crucifixion from afar. Not only that, as Jesus's body hung upon the cross and asked for his death, who was it that came and got Jesus and took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. It wasn't Peter and it wasn't Bartholomew and it wasn't Thomas and it wasn't James. It wasn't any of the 10. It was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Two secret disciples are the ones that showed up. They didn't show up and take down the body. Now listen, this is in Jewish culture, this is one of the worst things that you could do to someone is to leave their body hanging on a cross. Their body would be taken down normally and be thrown upon the trash pile. And leaving that body there was basically saying like your body is, a, is trash to us. That is what they're saying to him. That for fear, the disciples have totally abandoned Jesus. You have to think in this moment, there had to be some sort of inner dialogue happening among the disciples themselves. What will Jesus' Jesus's attitude be toward us? Can he forgive us? We failed him so miserably and this text tells us what Jesus's heart is toward them. We put a lot of emphasis on final words and we should, right? There's a lot of emphasis we put on final words. As my grandmother was, was literally dying, going to see Jesus, I went to visit her one day and she pulled me close and she said, Andy, underneath my bed, the bed that she's laying on in her bedroom, she said, there's some money. And I want you to take that money and I want you to go on a mission trip to Romania. So a couple of months later, guess where I went? I went to Romania, right? Not because there was sufficient money there, but because my dying grandmother said, Andy, I want you to go to Romania. And so I went on a mission trip to Romania, right? Because dying words, they have power, but in the same way, so do first words. Many of us, we can think about the first words that our child spoke because first words are important words. And here we have Jesus's first words to his disciples. And what are those words? Peace. What is Jesus's heart and his attitude toward us? They must have thought, but they didn't have to guess because Jesus tells them, Jesus came, he stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and he showed them his side. Then his disciples, they were glad. They went from fear to joy when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. 
And if peace is the first word that Jesus speaks to the people who have failed him the most, the people that have led him down the most, then why do you think it would be any less for you? If Jesus's attitude towards the people that have failed him the most when he probably needed, seemingly needed him the most, then why do you think his attitude would be any different or any less for you? Jesus doesn't come at them with hostility or anger or rebuke or disappointment or blame, but one word spoken two times, peace, peace that Jesus steps into fearful situation. Nothing bars him from stepping in. Jesus comes to his own when they are afraid. He doesn't wait for them to get their act together. He doesn't wait for them to have enough faith to overcome fear. He comes to them. He, He comes to them even when they don't have enough faith to overcome their fear. And he comes and he brings peace. He speaks a word of peace. Now, peace is kind of a ethereal idea, right? Think about the bumper sticker that says visualize uh, world peace. And we try to think about a world without conflict, without war, without strife. And that day is coming. And we would say as Christians, speed the day. Come, Lord Jesus, we would love to see this. But the work of the cross is a present day of work of peace that the work of cross, it brings peace to us. It brings peace with God. That's what Paul writes in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you'd be like, I didn't know we were at war, right? I didn't know there was a problem there. Well, there is one. Your sin is cosmic rebellion against your creator. That Paul writes in Romans the eighth chapter that the heart that's set upon the flesh, the mind that is set upon the flesh, that it's at war with God. It's hostile towards God. And that's the condition of fallen man. And Christ comes through the power of his cross. He removes our sin. He propitiates the Father's wrath. He absorbs all of the Father's just judgment for our sin. And he brings peace through your faith in the finished work of Christ. Christ brings peace. He brings peace with one another. He brings peace with ourselves even. That many of us, we labor under the misery of our sin we, we labor under a defiled and guilty conscience and we wonder if Jesus can forgive us, but he can and he does. He takes our sin and he removes it as far as the east is from the west and he cleanses us. The blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works so that we may serve the living God. That's Hebrews the ninth, ninth chapter, verse 14. Oh, the precious peace of a clear conscience and we can find that in Christ. Christ brings his presence. He speaks a word of peace. And then Christ also brings purpose. Jesus sends us. Look at what he says here. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And instead of Jesus throwing these men off the team, Jesus tells them, hey, you're my starters. But as the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I am sending you, that Jesus has come on a mission. Jesus was sent to this earth from the Father with a purpose, with a mission in mind. 
It was formulated before Genesis 1 ever began, before, before the Father ever said a single, spoke a single thing into existence. There was already a plan in place, a purpose in mind for the Son. And when Jesus shows up in the beginning of the gospel accounts, as we see that, we see this mission of God, this mission of Christ unfolding. What was the mission? What was the purpose? Well, Jesus summed it up in Mark 10, verses 45, like this. He said, I do not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's the purpose. Jesus didn't come so he could have servants serve him, but Jesus came as a servant. He stooped down and made himself a servant. And what's the pinnacle of that servant? Well, it's what he does on the cross. It's that he gives his life as a ransom, as a deposit to secure many, to free many. That's the picture. It's a picture of, a, of kidnapping. It's a picture of slavery that I've laid down my life, that with my blood, I'm purchasing people. I'm purchasing many. That's what he's come to do. He says it in Luke, the 19th chapter, verse 10. He said it like this. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Who was lost? Well, his children are the ones that are lost. The lost humanity that he's come to save, come to seek, to look after, and to save that which was lost. And the hours before the cross, Jesus will say to Pontius Pilate, Pilate will be questioning Jesus, and Jesus will say it's for this purpose. The cross is going to happen just a few hours later. It's for this purpose that I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. What truth is it? The truth of the Father, the truth of the Son, the truth of salvation, the truth of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, Jesus accomplishes his, miss, his mission. That with his death and now with his resurrection, Jesus' mission is mission accomplished. And our mission proceeds from his mission. Do you see that in the text? As the Father has sent me with a mission and with a purpose in mind, so I am sending you, my disciples, with a mission and with a purpose in mind. And our mission proceeds from his accomplished mission. Our purpose as his disciples is linked to his purpose that you and I, we get to go and proclaim the accomplished mission of Jesus. Now, a lot can be said about purpose. I don't know Almost 30 years ago, a, book, a great book was written for churches. They called The Purpose Driven Church. Another book followed up by Rick Warren called The Purpose Driven Life. Uh, both are fairly good books, but there was this buzz in the late 90s, early 2000s, and you know later even, all about purpose. What's your purpose? What's your purpose? And I know that if you lack purpose, that you just live your life like, however, if your life lacks purpose, and you'll just like live a lackluster life. I mean, probably the thing that has taught me the most about purpose has been um, one of my, believe it or not, one of my favorite movies, which is the movie The Incredibles. That's right, the cartoon. Don't judge me. Incredibles. In fact, it was on last night. We were flipping channels. We paused and watched a little bit of The Incredibles. And I love the story of The Incredibles. It's a family of superheroes who aren't allowed to be superheroes anymore. Being superheroes has become illegal, and so they can't be superheroes, and so they have to try to live their lives, even though they have supernatural power and a supernatural purpose. You feel it, right? Supernatural power and supernatural purpose. They had to live their lives just like regular Joes. 
the once strong and capable and heroic Mr. Incredible, he's forced to live a life of being normal and working a Joe job, and he's absolutely miserable. He's barred from helping anyone. He can't even help a little old lady with her taxes. Gets in trouble for doing that. And he's absolutely miserable. His life, he's just like numb. His life with his family, his life with his wife, his life, everything, he gets flabby. He gets like all of those things are happening to him. And what's going on? His life lacks purpose. He was created for a purpose, to be a superhero and His life lacks purpose. His life lacks direction and he's miserable. And the same thing happens to many of us. That many of us, we are living life divorced from the purpose for which we have been created. The purpose for which we've been saved. And the purpose for which we have been saved is this. It is to know Christ and to make him known. That is what you've been saved for. Christ has revealed himself as an immense work of his grace to you. He has revealed himself to you as a savior and as a Lord. And you've been saved, saved from your sin, saved from your past, saved from your guilt, not just so that someday you'll go to heaven, but you've been saved for that, but you've been saved to know this resurrected real Christ and you've been saved to make him known. Two things, both things together, to know Christ and to make Christ known that if you are saved, then your life has a purpose and that purpose is to make Christ known. And many of us, we feel miserable And our life feels comfortable and yet it feels boring and we are just meandering through a lackluster life and what is needed most in your life isn't a new job. Certainly it isn't a new spouse. It's not a new vehicle. It's not a new hobby. It's not any of those things. What's needed most is for you to join Jesus in living your life with the purpose that he has saved you for, which is to know him and to make him known. All of your life exists the place in which you live, the place in which you work, the place in which you go to school, the sporting events, all of those things have a purpose behind them. The purpose isn't just for your enjoyment, but the purpose is for you to use it as a platform so that you may know Christ and make Christ known in those places. That is the purpose. Then in a few minutes, Pastor Derek will close out this gathering like we have closed out some almost 700 gatherings together as a church. But over the last 13 plus years, we have closed out every single gathering, I believe, of the Point Community Church with these words, now go and be the church. And what does that mean? What means this, that we gather together as the church and whenever we say that, we will scatter out to the places that we live, to the highways and the byways. We'll scatter out to Versailles and to Midway and to Lawrenceburg and to Bald Knob. I know that's still Frankfurt, but you get, you're gonna scatter all the way out even into Bald Knob. You're gonna scatter out into Salvisa. And need we go on, you'll scatter out to those places. You'll scatter out tomorrow at Franklin County High School and Western Hills High School and Bondrick Middle School and Elkhorn Middle School and the elementary schools in this area. You'll scatter out into state office buildings. You'll scatter out into other places where you will be working and places where you'll be living. And your job when you get there 
It's to be the church. It's to represent Christ and his great grace and his great love and to live your life on purpose. Steve Timmis said this in uh, a book that we absolutely love. He said this, that what does it mean to be the church? What means this, that we are ordinary people doing ordinary things, but we're doing it with gospel intentionality. Certainly everyone in here is ordinary. Well, you're extraordinary to your mom, but you're ordinary. We're just ordinary people. Most of us blue collar, middle income, ordinary folks. And you're gonna do ordinary things. Get up in the morning and eat breakfast, right? Maybe possibly some of you will exercise. The rest of us sinners won't. Hopefully you'll read your Bible, you'll say a prayer, pack your lunch and you'll go to work and you'll do your job and you'll do it the best that you can and you'll go to lunch and you spend your evening activities. We're gonna do ordinary things, but listen, the church, we do those ordinary things as ordinary people, but we do it with gospel intentionality. We live our life with purpose and intentionality about the thing that matters most. The thing that matters most isn't your pension. It's not your retirement plan. It's not the car that you drive. It's not any of those things. The thing that matters most is heaven and hell and the people that are around you. And what it means by gospel and intentionality, it means this, that we live life with an awareness that the people around you, whether they're saved or they're unsaved, And for those that you are living in close proximity with, your neighbors and your co-work, your family members, possibly, just possibly, you are the God-appointed and God-fordained means for which they might become saved. That's you understanding that, living with an awareness that maybe it's me. God wants to save this person. And maybe it's me, maybe it's my witness and maybe it's my words and maybe it's my invitation and maybe it's my hospitality and maybe it's my friendship and maybe it's the the integrity with which I live that God would leverage that to open up their hearts and to save this person. It's living like that. So let me ask you, you, do you engage others with the gospel? I don't want us to just drift Point Community Church. Like I feel as if sometimes we drift and you never drift into good things. You only drift downstream into what's easy. And certainly you've lived your life to know that the things that matter most aren't the things that come easy in life. And it's easy to live our lives with ungospel intentionality but it takes work to live our lives with gospel intentionality. So let me pick at some low-hanging fruit. When's the last time you invited someone to church? Let's just start there. It's not to make you feel guilty or to spread blame or guilt. I'm just, just asking. How do you know if you're drifting? Well, let me ask you if you're in mission drift if you're losing your sense of purpose, when's the last time you shared the gospel with anyone? Do you show up at work with gospel intentionality? Do you 
engage your neighbors with gospel intentionality? Do you walk in here with gospel intentionality? Think about right now one of your lost loved ones. Maybe it's a son or a daughter, a brother, a sister, a mom or a dad. And think about them going to a church somewhere. For whatever reason, they woke up and God was beckoning them and they got up and they went to church. They went to a gathering of a church somewhere. The hospitality and attitude and atmosphere of what you hope they step into, think about that. What, do you, what would you hope that they would find whenever they walked in through the doors of a church? Friendly people, people that greeted them, people that didn't press too hard, but were here and available and helpful. And hopefully they, people sang and showed some passion. Isn't that what you would hope that they would find? And then for the folks that showed up here this morning, is that what they found in you? Did they find a friendly face and pleasant words and a, hey, good morning, it's good to have you when that person, that other person's lost, unsaved loved one showed up here? We gotta fight the drift. We have to live our lives with gospel intentionality. Lastly, not only purpose, but power. Verse 22, Jesus, or Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. When Jesus said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The significance of Jesus breathing on them is pretty simple. In Genesis, um, when God creates man, he fashions him out of the clay Moses records for us in Genesis. And then God breathes breath into his nostrils. He breathes the breath of life into Adam. And here what Jesus is doing to his new creation is he's breathing life into them. He's breathing power into them. He's breathing the new breath of life, which is the very Holy Spirit of God. But here Jesus is symbolically bestowing upon them what they will receive in its fullness on the day of Pentecost. It'll be manifested on the day of the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit will come. But here he is symbolically bestowing it upon them by saying, I'm breathing life into you. That the Spirit is the life and it is the power needed for us to accomplish Jesus's mission. He's equipping them with the necessary means to accomplish the mission. And what is that mission? Well, it's here in verse 23. It's a little veiled, but look at what it says in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, I know that whenever we, at first cursory glance of this, it sounds like you and I have power to forgive and power to not forgive. Some of you are like, that's the power I've been waiting on. You know, sorry about your luck, right? Some of you getting your phones out, trying to text your ex right now, right? Put them back up, put it back up. Last week when we talked about interpreting the Bible, what we said is you interpret hard to understand passages of scripture with easier to understand scripture. And so when we come to this, it's like, well, where else do we see this in the Bible? Well, we see it alluded to in church discipline, but I don't really think that's what Jesus is getting at here. What Jesus is getting at, the clear passage that we could turn over and look at, is found with the same account, but it's what Luke tells us in... Uh, Luke chapter 24. 
45, it says this in 24, 45. It says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name of in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you, but stay into the city until you are clothed with power on high. Two things that we are to proclaim. We are to proclaim repentance and forgiveness. And that's the same preaching and teaching here. That you and I, we can preach with authority the forgiveness of sins. We can preach authority to declare sinners as sinners and the forgiven, those who place their faith in Jesus as the forgiven. We can proclaim forgiveness to the repentant. And that's what we're called to do. That's preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel isn't to judge someone, but it is to say that sinners stand underneath the condemnation of a just judge of the universe. And we can be forgiven and forgiveness is found in Jesus. That's what we're to do to proclaim the good news of forgiveness that is found in Jesus. As we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's Supper, before we get here, I wanna ask that we do one thing. Can we just do this? Can we, every one of us, can we think about one person? Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a neighbor. Could you think of one person that you could pray for even this morning that has yet to place faith in Christ? Or if they have, their life is not being evidence to that. And I know we live in a culture like, hey, I gotta be careful. I don't wanna judge them. I don't know what the state of their soul is. No, that's what that text of scripture says. You have the authority to say, if you're living in sin, then you are a sinner. If you're not bearing the fruit of the spirit, then you're a sinner and you're in need of salvation. You have authority, you've been deputized to do that. It's not judging, it's just using scripture. It's all that is. But can you think of a person, just one person, could you pray for that person? Could you pray for that person for the next couple of weeks, even every day? Just that one person. I'm talking about 25 people. I'm talking about one. Just one person. Could you even this morning, could you commit, say, I'm gonna pray for that person for the next couple of weeks? And number two, could you pray and ask God to give you an opportunity to share the gospel with that person? I don't know how to share the gospel. Well, how did you get saved? Maybe just share your story. Share what Jesus has done for you. Could you possibly invite them, maybe invite them here to this gathering or if not to this gathering, invite them to your community group, but send an invitation, just one person. Just one person. That's how we fight mission drift. We think about individual specifics. We think about, we look around and say, who, who could that be? Who could God put me in close proximity to that I could share the gospel with, that I can invite, that I could show hospitality to, something. Let's pray. Let's just stop before we run up to the table and let's just pray. Let's pray for that person. And now, as you're praying for that lost person, you can switch gears and you can begin giving thanks to God for your own salvation. We have an opportunity this morning to remember that to remember what Jesus has done for us. And if he's done it for us, then he's willing to do it for that person you're praying for. That this morning, like most Sunday mornings, we will observe the Lord's Supper. That we have this morning 
according to Jesus' teaching and command, we have, bought, we have bread that has been already cut up, bread that has been broken for us that's in these bowls, and we have juice that's been poured out into these little plastic cups that is for us as well. The bread represents Christ's body that was broken for us. The juice represents Jesus' blood that was shed for us. It's the blood of a new covenant. It's by this broken body and by this blood that you and I, we have peace with God. We have peace with one another. We have peace even with ourselves. Gosh, that's such good news. Preached 15 more minutes on that. Such good news. And as we come this morning and as we remember what Christ has done for us, remember his saving grace, remember how we felt even when we were lost, meandering through life, condemned and full of guilt. What our lives were like the places that we went to to try to find peace and satisfaction. And then we remember it, how we found it in Christ. We use grape juice, not wine here. There's part of that I like, part of it I don't like, but the part I like is it's sweet to the taste. We remember this morning the sweetness of Jesus to us as we drink this and take this. The way that we observe the Lord's Supper here at the Point Community Church is we have two stations in the front, two in the back. It's open to any repentant follower of Christ, regardless of where you may be a member. We invite you this morning to come and to take of the Lord's Supper with us. You can grab a piece of this bread and grab a cup of this juice and you can eat it standing at one of the four stations or you can take it to your pew. We have offering baskets that are in the front and the back as well. Pastors like myself and Pastor Frank will be standing in the back along that back wall. If you need to pray for anything, you need to confess sin and go ahead and, and receive Christ as a Savior this morning and schedule a baptism. Then Pastor Frank and I will be in the back. We'd love nothing more than to pray with you to those ends. Let's stand, church. Let's sing. Let's take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray for our lost friends. Let's give and let's just rejoice in all of who Jesus is.